as I like to say, it's not just that we're here and we're queer. We have been here and we have been queer for several thousand years. You just forgot. <laughs> to, to, to further that point, I think it's it's not that it's not that we forgot. It's that we were we were it was taken from us. And I think that's one of the things I, I've been thinking about, and, and I think that struck me as you were speaking is that. Um, how insidious is white supremacy and is the, are the systems of oppression in this country that they make us forget where we came from, that make us forget that trans and queer people have been existent since ancient Mesopotamian times and somehow we conveniently forgot that through this period of US imperialism. Um, and I, I think like, I have also experienced this dissonance of, oh, if you're queer, that makes you somehow more American and less Korean, kind of ripping you more from the motherland. Um, but who is doing that ripping? This is Uncommon Good, the podcast where we chat to ordinary people doing uncommon good in service of our common humanity. My name is Polly Reese. Fam, I am delighted today to bring you an extra special bonus episode. This is the live, unedited recording of Muim, a gathering of queer and trans people of Korean descent held in March 2023, recorded on location at David Rubenstein Atrium of Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts in New York City. This was a panel of seven queer and trans folk of Korean descent of various areas of expertise coming together to share the insight. Here's your content warning. Trauma, discussions of anti-Asian racism, discussions of historical violence, discussions of queer phobia, and there is explicit language in this episode. It was a privilege, an honor, a sacred honor to be in the room with these folk and get to share a little insight as well. Please enjoy the taping. Hello, good evening. Hello. Oh, we're here. Full transparency, yes. This has been a long time coming. We're so excited to have you. So to introduce myself, my name is Donby Lee Hong. I use they, them pronouns. I am a queer non-binary artist and organizer based in Seattle, Washington. Um, yeah, and I'm also a steering committee member with KQDX National Network, which is the first queer and trans national network um, that just aims to build community for queer and trans folks of the Korean diaspora. And I will be co-moderating the panel with Miro this evening. Yeah. Hi, everyone. My name is Mi. Um, I use they, them pronouns. I am currently a, a grad student in Chicago, Illinois, um, also a community organizer, uh, and a former steering committee member, now an advisory council member for the same organization, um, KQDX Doctoral Network. Um, we are so excited to have you all here today for day one of Moim, which is, yay! <laughs> Moim, um, which is a Korean word for gathering, reunion, and event, a momentous occasion as it is today. Um, tonight, we will be discussing um, having 
wonderful, six wonderful panelists to discuss all things Korean, queer, and transgender. Um, these are leaders, role models, amazing, amazing people in the community. Um, we're very, very excited to be with them today. And then, um, just want to do remind you that it is a two-day event, so please don't forget to come back tomorrow um, at 7.30 for a celebration of artists and other community members um, who are going to be blessing us with lots of music, art, and performances for tomorrow. Thank you so much. And this event is hosted in collaboration with the David Rubenstein Atrium. Um, who's happy to host free programming three to four nights a week at the Lincoln Center, so be sure to check that out. We're so grateful to our gracious hosts this evening. And we just have some housekeeping. Yes, so one quick housekeeping is that this is a fully mask mandatory program um, for both today and tomorrow. And what this means is that we ask that you um, stay fully masked unless you are actively eating or drinking, um, at which point that's fine because you can't eat or drink throughout your mask. Um, but we ask that uh, you do abide by this request and we thank you in, uh, on advance because I see that everyone is wearing a mask here. So that should not be an issue. Um, and without further ado, we'll welcome our first panelist to the stage. Janice Jin is a member of Nudotor, an organization of Koreans and comrades working towards Korean unification and national liberation. Welcome, welcome. Holly Reese is a content creator and producer based out of Philadelphia who integrates techniques of trauma-informed spiritual care and digital storytelling to build con conversation and community across lines of difference, principally through their company, Uncommon Good Media. Skylar Baylor is a queer Korean-American advocate, author, and educator who was the first openly transgender athlete on a Division I men's sports team. Next, we are followed by Popsa Sung Park, using he, him pronouns. Um, Sung Park is an initiated Korean shaman, Park Su Mudang, who lives in Brooklyn and wants to serve, support communities in reclaiming and ensuring and pursuing their ancestral practices. We also have the lovely Dr. Pauline Park, who is an activist and writer who lives in Jackson Heights and is in Western Queens and has been doing LGBTQ activism since 1994 and Palestinian solidarity organizing since 2011. And last but not least, we have Mudang Jen, who is a Korean-American shaman, um, also known as Mudang. Uh, she is an internationally known and respected teaching artist, practicing Mudang, and consultant on Muism, which is Korea's ancient and indigenous religion. Thank you all to our panelists. Um, let's be seated. So the first question that we have for all of our panelists is, what is your relationship to the word queer? How has or hasn't this informed your work? We're starting with the easy one, so you know, take your time. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll just go first. Um, 
For me, I think the word queer, uh, when I came out or was coming into really fully knowing who I was, uh, this was like early 90s. And so the term or the language around transgender wasn't really accessible and I didn't know about it. So what, um, for me, what it did was give me access into really kind of starting to find who I was in the words. And that's what it did for me. Thank you. Does anyone else have thoughts going off of Pop Sazong? Yes, Skylar? The first time I remember having sort of a, um, what's the best way to, like a, a conflict with the word, um, I was giving a, a speech in Florida to a, a largely um, older population of trans people, and I used the word queer to discuss myself and, a, and just sort of identity in general. Um, and I was actually given the feedback afterwards that people didn't like that. And it was the first time that I had experienced sort of an intergenerational shift from language. And I, I share this because I think when I, was, when I was a kid, people used queer, it was kind of like starting to be used to discuss sexuality. Um, and, and I didn't use it to discuss my sexuality because I didn't feel like it applied at the time. Um, but then it became something that this sort of, sort of so central to how I describe myself now and there's this really interesting history where it's also something that's been used to hurt a lot of people. Um, so I personally love the word queer and I think it's a, a great way to describe both my gender and my sexuality as a queer trans person. And I think it, it's um, part, of, part of what I never wanna lose is, is the history of its impact on others as well. Um, and so I, I think it's always, uh, I don't know, I wanted to add that in because I think sometimes we can miss where we come from um, in these conversations and I don't ever want to um, erase our, our transcestors, our, our queer ancestors. They don't want to be called queer, so it's another. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much for that addition with history and context. I do think that's like really important, and you're right. The word queer has been connotated with a lot of different um, usages, and it has been used and abused throughout history, and so thank you for that. Yeah. Yes. I would just say that uh, I do identify as queer, but there is a an ambiguity at the heart of the term because it can mean, as was alluded to before, either sexually non-heteronormative, meaning lesbian, gay, bisexual, or and or it can mean genderqueer in some sense, trans or non-binary. Um, and so I think we have to take that into account when recognizing that it is still useful as a an umbrella term. The other thing I'd note is that queer was supposed to solve the alphabet soup problem, right, of LGBT, but now people just say LGBTQ. <laughs> so queer has been subsumed within this umbrella uh, alphabet soup that it was supposed to replace. I just note the irony of that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I appreciated Skylar when you talked a little bit about sort of the generational differences that might impact how we feel about the term queer. I think for me, I'm, I'm pretty recently out of college, so I'll, I'll date myself there, but um, I think for me when I was in college, queer was actually the word that was used the most in the spaces that I was in. And in fact, I often heard uh, QPOC, queer POC, being sort of another label that a lot of people used. And I think for me, when I, when I went to college, 
I didn't identify as queer. Like, I, I hadn't made that legible to myself. And I found myself hanging out with all the queer kids in school. And I remember my friends would sort of, it was a running joke that, you know, I'd wear these, like, button-up shirts, and they would be like, all right, when is straight Janice going to come out? And they, of course, were right, but eventually I did. But I think I gravitated really toward those queer spaces and queer POC spaces because I think to me they also signaled a kind of shared value or a shared political commitment of some sort. And I think I was drawn to those spaces for precisely that reason, even if at the time I was straight Janice or I identified myself that way. Um, and so I, I think for me being in those sort of queer POC spaces, I felt in the friendships I was making and the relationships I was building, there was something undergirding those relationships that wasn't just about the interpersonal, but it was also about the political. And, you know, that also helped me to reimagine what my friendships could look like, what my relationships could look like. What could my relationship to sex and to gender and to desire and power, what could all of that look like? And so eventually I came to identify myself with the word queer. But I think there's something interesting and expansive about how that word sort of, um, it can be more than a sexual identity, right? It can be like a sort of uh, something that builds momentum or builds community among people. And that's sort of what I found, I think, in, when I was in college especially, you know, finding that in queer spaces. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing so much of your story. And I think that's like really interesting. And no worries on dating yourself. I feel like we're all in understanding of like um, the various different generations. And that's one of the beauties of being in community with, with each other is that we are in this space to learn from one another and our different experiences. And I think kind of going off of that, I actually um, have a question for Dr. Park, um, specifically because there are so many experiences from you know, your career and your journey as an individual um, and as an academic, as a philosopher, you know, all of these multitudes of identities that you've discovered and realized. You know, could you tell us a little bit about your work with um, specifically the Korea Queer Festival and the Seoul Pride Parade in 2015? Uh, I was adopted at the age of seven and a half months. Um, so in 2015, I returned to Korea for the first time since my adoption. And I was really honored to be invited to keynote uh, the Queer Korea Festival, um, which precedes the Seoul Pride Parade, uh, which was the largest event in the history of the queer community up until that time. Uh, it was really a tremendous experience, um, and uh, I talk about it at some length on, on my website. Um, I think that it gave me a really good sense of the challenges that the queer community continue to face in Korea, even as they make progress, and the need for solidarity with queer communities in Korea, Asia, and abroad, uh, and uh, the work that is still to be done. The one thing I'd add is that the Seoul Pride Parade, which comes after the Queer Korea Festival, was really exhilarating because there was no corporate sponsorship. And so it was, that. yes, 
Uh, there were no banks or corporations with floats or affinity groups, and those are all fine. I, I, I'm all for that. But uh, it was just queer Koreans marching for their rights. And it really took me back to the day when there were no corporate sponsorships to date myself. I marched in the first national, it was called Gay and Lesbian, this was before LGBT and transgender, uh, march on Washington uh, in 1980. Yeah, I was one year old. But uh, <laughs> I was very precocious. Um, um, but back then, there were no corporate sponsorships. And so I think that we have to think carefully about how, on the one hand, we fund a community and a movement and organizations which need those resources. But on the other hand, what compromises we may have to make in accepting funding from those sources. Thank you so much, Dr. Park. Thank you. Yes, staying on the Korean Peninsula, um, Janice, I actually have a question for you about your involvement and work with Nodutor. And can you talk a little bit about how you got involved with Nodutor and what kind of work you've been doing through the organization? Yes, of course. Um, just to give a little bit of background, Nodutor is an organization of Koreans and comrades. Um, we organize against US imperialism and toward Korean reunification and liberation. Uh, Nodutol was founded in 1999 in New York, though now we have members across the U.S. and in Canada as well. Um, I joined Nodutol about a year and a half ago. I think, for me, I think my relationship to Koreanness and Korea has changed a lot over my lifetime. Um, as a kid, I was born in the U.S. and I don't really speak much to my extended family, so I, I didn't really feel super connected to Korea as a kid. Um, but when I was in college, I sort of started to develop my thinking around anti-war and anti-imperialist politics. And I remember really vividly in 2017, um, Donald Trump gave this quote that was um, that the US would unleash fire and fury against North Korea if given any more threats that fire and fury quote really stuck with me. And I think I started to feel really scared about what would happen if the US went to war with North Korea. At the same time, I realized that I didn't really know anything about North Korea. My family is Korean Chinese. Uh, that means I'm, I'm ethnically Korean, but my parents were born and raised in China. And so my extended family lives in Yanbian, which is a, an area of China that's right along the border with North Korea. And so as a kid, I remember visiting my family in China. And really, the only experience I had with North Korea was visiting China. Because I remember my parents would say to me, Hanmoni's house is very close to North Korea. You know, you could even walk to North Korea from your Hanmoni's house. I was so scared. I think I was like 10. I was like, oh no, what's going to happen to me? You know, I would, I would lie awake at night and think, oh, what would happen if I walked all the way to North Korea? What would happen to me? <laughs> um, but I think recounting that story now makes me really sad because North Korea is my homeland too. North Korea is Korea. There used to not be a North Korea and a South Korea. 
And over the years, I've, I've started to learn more about um, you know, Korea before war and Korea before division. And I think that's actually helped me to sort of reimagine my relationship to Korea too. Because I recognize too that I have a different stake in it as someone who lives in the US. You know, I'm living in the US, the heart of the empire, and the empire that has divided Korea and split our homeland into two. And I think learning more about that history, right? Um, when we talk about being Korean American, I think there's one way to tell the story that's, that's sort of about, um, like an uplifting story about immigrant assimilation or achievement or accomplishment. But there's a different way to tell that story if you go a little further back in time, right, to the Korean War. And what is actually the relationship between those two words in Korean-American, Korea and America? And I think for me, trying to grapple with that question is what brought me to Noruto and what's kept me sort of wanting to explore it. And I've loved being in Noruto, I think sort of, it's one thing to try to ask all those questions by yourself, right? And read a bunch of books and Google things and watch YouTube videos alone. But it's another to do it with other people. And I found that I think being in an organization of people all trying to study and learn and, and work together toward um, the liberation of our shared homeland, I think has been really meaningful and very special to me. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, and I think that's a sentiment, especially with the knowledge and history that you covered of how, you know, the division of Korea and the peninsula and the, you know, the presence of US military and, you know, all of that historical context is something that we probably don't discuss enough and oftentimes gets really overlooked um, in the news and in a lot of mainstream media. Um, which is, I think, why I think Nodotor and your work with Nodotor is so important, right? Um, in bringing education to be more accessible um, to people like us um, and just to the rest of the world. Um, and in talking about, I think, Korea, the, the whole peninsula, what it means to have this connection um, of this identity, um, I do have a question for the entire panel. Um, for folks to kind of ponder on um, is, you know, for the Korean Queer Trans National Network, KQDX, one of our defining values is actually redefining Koreanness. And, and this specifically means like acknowledging our diversity of experiences within the Korean identity um, because there are so many and it is not one cover all blanket term. Um, and in recognizing that, you know, we know that everyone, you know, within who may or may not identify with the Korean identity um, are individuals of varying lineage. And so part of Moim and part of, you know, today is bringing folks together, holding a space to share dreams and hopes for our community um, and the changes you might still, you know, want to instill or provoke. 
um, with your leadership, with your work, um, and with this conversation. Um, and so given your personal experiences, I'm curious, you know, could you tell us about how you claim or redefine what Koreanness means to you? And what is a vision or dream you have for our community in this journey? I will give you a moment because that's a really long and I just, <laughs> I just rambled for a very long time. Um, but if we could just sit with that and then if you have thoughts, you know, we would love to hear that. I can go. Um, so I'm, I'm half Korean and, and half white. My um, mom's family is actually half North Korean and escaped from North Korea. My grandmother, Mahalmoni, walked from Pyongyang to Seoul um, before or right before the war broke out. Um, and my grandfather hid in Jeju <laughs> so he didn't have to fight in the army. Um, and then my dad is white from Chicago. Um, so I, I share this because as a kid, I spent most of my childhood being demanded, what are you? And it wasn't just, what are you? I can see that you're Asian. It was, what are you? I don't know what you are. Um, and, you know, I would, one of the things that I, th I found always most striking is I would answer the question. Sometimes I would be silly and I would just make, you know, I'd be like, I'm just a kid, but you know, they were asking me for my race. So when I finally would answer the question, I'm, I'm Korean, um, or I'm half Korean, I'm half white, people would often tell me, no, you're not. They would be like, no, you're not. You, no, you must be, insert some other ethnicity, whether it be Mexican, indigenous. Um, sometimes people would claim that they knew that I was Chinese and they would do something with their eyes, right? So people would decline me, my ethnicity, regardless of what background they were from. Um, but often and most painfully other Koreans. Um, and I have to say that coming here was definitely a, um, an interesting experience just to imagine coming to a Korean specific event because I, I thought to myself, well, am I Korean enough? And that's been a question I've asked myself my entire life. Um, and I think when I was a kid, this was, this was the first identity that I, that I knew, that I could name, that was obvious, right? My dad was white, my, or he still is white, <laughs> and my mom is Korean, and so the, the discrepancy or the difference between the two was, was glaring, right? And the way they were treated in public was also very obvious, um, obviously different. So I, I knew that identity early on, and I also knew early on that I needed to find a way to claim it for myself because nobody else was gonna do it for me. And I think through that process, I was able to, to define Koreanness as, as whatever it, it felt like to me um, in a way that said, Koreanness means that I have lineage that attaches me to this peninsula, to that peninsula, and, that, and that's really all that it necessitates. Everything else from there means I get to define it for myself. Whether that means I do it through language or through connection to my grandparents or eating kimchi um, or taking Korean lessons, right? I think there's many different ways that I have found to connect to my Koreanness that make me Korean enough to me and to me only and discard people's opinions. Um, but I think I, I wanted to share in that, in that space, I think there's been this really um, tense and difficult uh, conflict that I've had to hold that my blood embodies, which is the difference between colonizer and colonized. Right, my dad comes from a white background. His grandfather fought in the Korean War as a white man who went to Korea in the American army. And my grandparents on my Korean side escaped the Korean War. And to hold that, you know, 
in colonized blood, <laughs> quite literally, has felt like a tension that I, I don't ever really know I'll be able to release. Um, especially given that my mom is an Asian woman and my dad is a white man, there's also a whole trope and stereotype about what it means for an, you know, an Asian woman to marry um, a, a, a white man and the power differential and what it, you know, all the things that it drags forth in the world and, and what does it mean that I, I came from that, right? That birthed me and I am in this world, again, in that, in that sort of conflict of colonized and colonizer. Um, so. It's really about how I, I get it, then get to move from that and define it for myself as opposed to letting the colonized or the colonizer define it for me um, before I get to say who I am. Yeah, thank you again. Um, does anyone else also you know, have thoughts to add about this question? I know that it's... Yeah, it is like a very deeply provoking question, and we recognize that. Um, I, I do have something to add to Skylar's. Um, thank you for sharing. Um, I also just want to like take a moment to recognize the fact that this is an intergenerational panel. And I, I think for me, having gone through different iterations of queer Korean movements in New York specifically, that this is kind of you know, it's, it's a very touching moment for me, right? Because like, for someone who's like in my mid-40s, I mean, I've known Pauline since, I don't know, like 90, 99, right? So we've known each other since 99. Um, and you know, like Pauline has also always been there as one of the kind of like the elders. I mean, back then she wasn't an elder, but she was always kind of the elder, right? Just because, you know, I'm sorry, Pauline. <laughs> um, you know, and then, you know, different life stages kind of bring us to different places. And, you know, some of us fall out of movement, some of us fall out of community, or we create our own. And then, you know, like, you get caught up in life. And so one of the things that I do want to recognize is just kind of like the, the span of like the different timeline and living history that's up here. Um, and I also want to um, say that to me, Koreanness is really the way that I look at identity is rooted in movement, right? And it's rooted in community. So it's always going to be in fluctuation and it's always going to be a living and breathing thing, right? So to me, it's, it's about Koreanness, like I think a lot about being a Korean in the diaspora, right? Um, I came here to the US when I was nine. I identify as 1.5. I've always felt like I had one foot in Korean culture and one foot in American culture and not really knowing where I fit. And then um, when you throw in the whole like queer and trans thing into the mix, it just kind of like, so when I first came out to my older brother, um, oh God, too many years ago, his first comment was, oh, we're a real American family. Right, so it was like the queerness that defined whether or not I was Korean enough, right? So I think that, you know, I am really hoping that some of these things have changed within Korean families and in the larger context of the community. But I also value the fact that that was his response because what that made me do was really dig into who I was, right? And the fact that I grew up in the Korean immigrant church and the fact that like, I felt so Korean, and just the fact that, you know, that I'm trans and, and, and queer would make me less Korean in other people's eyes. And so, in a way, it really humbled me 
<clears throat> in, um, in looking at other people, right? And that it's not, I can't judge whether or not you're Korean enough, whether or not you're Korean enough, right? And, and the fact of the matter is, is that we are all in the diaspora looking and searching. Like we are all searching, right? And one of the things that I do hope is that we do get to a place and as a community and together that we start to really rediscover and reclaim some of those things that everyone has told us doesn't belong to us, because it does. So I uh, was adopted about the same time as Pak Chung Hee's military coup d'etat that overthrew the Second Republic. Yeah, I don't know if you knew that. Yeah, yeah, which was interesting because when I spoke at the Queer Korea Festival. Um, I referenced the fact that his daughter was then in the Blue House. Um, she was uh, often called the princess for having grown up in the Blue House. So as I said at the Queer Korea Festival, what Korea needs is fewer princesses and more queens in power. Um, uh, so I was adopted by a European-American family. My uh, parents were Christian fundamentalists. My father was second-generation Norwegian-American, and my mother was fourth-generation German-American. Um, my grandmother, who was uh, my third parent, uh, her first language was actually German. And I think maybe I have a bit more of a historical perspective than some people in my age group, because my uh, mother was born in 1916, my father was born in 1912, and my grandmother was born in 1888. So I was raised by someone who was born in the 19th century. Um, it's interesting reflecting on that upbringing because I grew up in an all-white neighborhood on the south side of Milwaukee. My brother and I were the only non-white children in our grade school. And uh, so I've gone from that to the opposite extreme. I now live in Jackson Heights, which is the most demographically diverse spot on planet Earth. Um, but there's been a long journey between Milwaukee and Jackson Heights. Um, I, when I was in graduate school, I took a course in political theory and read Michel Foucault and had this kind of breakthrough moment because I'd been struggling with identity questions all my life, which is uh, hardly unique for either someone who's LGBT queer or a Korean adoptee. And I realized that there was an interesting parallel between my transgender identity and my Korean adoptee identity because I'd been struggling with binary oppositions all my life and realized that they were false dichotomies because on the one hand, there was real Korean versus fake Korean since I didn't grow up uh, with Korean family members or learning speaking the language. And the same thing with regard to transgender identity, real woman versus fake woman and realized that this parallel, um, thinking through and working through this parallel, that I had my own uh, unique identity uh, that was just as uh, authentic and legitimate um, as someone who grew up in an ethnic Korean family or who was female-bodied, even if my experiences obviously were different from uh, ethnic Koreans or female-bodied 
women, uh, those who are assigned to the female sex at birth. Uh, when I transitioned, I decided to start using my Korean birth family name. The interesting thing about that is it kind of occluded my adoptee identity somewhat inadvertently because using a Korean family name, other Korean adoptees don't necessarily instantly recognize you as an adoptee. Um, but what I realized is that all um, identity formations are social constructions. And ultimately, one has to see through those social constructions and define my, uh, oneself um, through the authenticity of one's own being, whatever that may be. Uh, and that we can ultimately come to an understanding of ourselves, I think as uh, uh, some put it so eloquently, really through community. And it's actually uh, through community and really frankly, in many ways through activism and organizing that I came to actualize my transgender identity and in many ways my uh, identity as a Korean adoptee, uh, co-founding a group called Iban Queer Koreans of New York back in 1997. And even though it only lasted three years, it was the first Korean-specific LGBT organization here in New York. And in many ways uh, is still fondly remembered by those who were members of it. Uh, so ultimately, I think we have to articulate our own authenticity and uh, live in the integrity of our own identity, however we articulate the identity. I'm really moved to hear how many commonalities I think there are between all of our experiences. In particular, I think this feeling of either straddling a binary or being inadequate in some way, I feel like is something that, that I've heard in, in each, of, each of your stories. And I think, um, I think there's something here about how the experience of queerness might equip us actually to be thinking about how we can be creating Korean identity through, through the acts of living, through our own lives. You know, I think queerness, being queer, similarly to me at least, I feel like it can feel undefined or people can have a different conception of what it means to them. And Skylar, I like the way you put it where, you know, you were like, I had to define Koreanness for myself. And that's, I think, a similar way that I feel about queerness a lot of the time. And so, um, you know, in Song, you said, you said something about searching, right? Searching for that Korean identity. I feel like there's something there about taking it for yourself, searching. There's a lot of action. Like, you know, what would it look like to think about Korean identity as a verb? Something we, we make something we are, something we try to create, rather than something like being, you know, just like a natural state. And I think, you know, I, I feel like this panel is, it's, you know, you're right that it's amazing how intergenerational it is. We're all so different, and yet we have a lot of shared experiences. And I think, if anything, to me, it, it makes me feel hopeful that I feel like, you know, we are and we can 
uh, envision a Korean identity that is expansive and that's not limiting. Because I think for, for all of us to be free and for all of us to have the world we deserve to live in, it's gonna take queer Koreans, adopted Koreans, multiracial Koreans, disabled Koreans, Zainichi Koreans, Korean Chinese people, it's gonna take all of us. And I think, yeah, I just feel really moved, I guess, to sort of hear, hear each of you talk a little bit about your own experiences and they really resonated with me too. Something. Yeah, go for it. Um, so uh, one of the things that I've really come to conclude is that identity politics can either be limiting and exclusionary or it can be empowering and liberating. And it really depends on how you articulate uh, that identity politics. Because I think identity politics is important insofar as we name the specificities of our oppressions. But we can't be limited by that. We have to use that identity politics framework to make common cause with other people and uh, work for a more just society. I'll add one other thing, which is, um, 12 years ago, I developed a presentation, which I've now given many times, about uh, queer Korean, uh, queer API history. Uh, it's a very long title for a very short presentation. Um, Proto-transgenderal and homoerotic traditions in pre-modern Asia and the Pacific. <laughs> Which sounds like a dissertation title, doesn't it? It's actually a lot more fun, and there's some racy photo, uh, racy images on my website. <laughs> if you want to check out pawingpark.com, some of them, if you posted them, might get you into trouble on social media. Um, but uh, what it does is really uh, look at the history of the Asia-Pacific region and people who anticipated contemporary LGBTQ identities, even if they were different in uh, some respects from, from folks uh, in this room. But the point is not simply to tell some interesting stories about our history. It's also to enable queer APIs to reclaim their history in a way that allows us to reinsert ourselves into the governing narratives and discourses of our countries and cultures of origin. In contrast to um, a gay diffusion model which articulates LGBT identity in white European American terms. And it's an important point uh, because reactionaries both within API communities here in the US and also back in our home countries and countries of origin uh, articulate that gay diffusion model, which is, well, if you're queer, it's only because you've been hanging around white people too much. Uh, that's actually the gay diffusion model that they use. And so uh, this history, which I present, and it's almost invariably new to every group of people, often, uh, classes of students uh, to whom I present it, uh, but they find it very empowering. I uh, gave a presentation in a class at Hunter College a year ago, and afterwards, one of the students came up to me. He said, well, you know, I, I'm 1.5 generation. I came uh, here from Korea when I was 12 years old. 
And when I came out as gay, I felt like I had to divorce myself from the Korean community, both because of its homophobia and because he had understood gay and LGBT identity articulated as, as white, as North Amer European and North American. Um, and he said, this is the first time that I've been able to connect my LGBT queer identity with my Korean heritage. Um, and uh, it was really the most gratifying thing to hear this young gay Korean American feel liberated by a short presentation on queer API history. But that is exactly what I think we need to do, is reclaim that history and reinsert ourselves in the narratives of our countries and cultures of origin. As I like to say, it's not just that we're here and we're queer. We have been here and we have been queer for several thousand years. You just forgot. To further that point, I think it's it's not that it's not that we forgot. It's that we were we were it was taken from us. And I think that's one of the things I, I've been thinking about, and, and I think that struck me as you were speaking is that. Um, how insidious is white supremacy and is the, are the systems of oppression in this country that they make us forget where we came from, that make us forget that trans and queer people have been existent since ancient Mesopotamian times and somehow we conveniently forgot that through this period of US imperialism. Um, and I, I think like, I have also experienced this dissonance of, oh, if you're queer, that makes you somehow more American and less Korean, kind of ripping you more from the motherland. Um, but who is doing that ripping? Is it, is it Korean people? Is it Koreanness? Or is it truly white imperialism and the systems of oppression that have forced us to forget that, or rather killed and, and beat it out of us? And, and I think, you know, I, I, I've done a lot of research on, on indigenous populations in the United States, specifically, or on Turtle Island, and what they, what a lot of the, for anybody who doesn't know, what a lot of the colonization did was actually destroy civilizations of people through targeting the queer and trans people, through targeting the people who didn't seem to, to uh, uh, match these binaries. Um, and when you do that, you could actually then empower the men, or who you said were men, over the women, and then that creates internal conflict and there destroys the society. So it, it, I think one of the things we miss and that I didn't learn in school and had to discover over time and through presentations, um, I've not seen yours, but now I need to go see it. Um, but through these kinds of learnings from you know, tr queer and trans people of color histories, we actually learned that, that a lot of the destruction came out of, began with um, a, a genocide of trans and queer people and trans and queerness. So we didn't, we didn't forget, I don't, this is not an argument with you, I know you know this, but um, <laughs> it's, it's, not a, it's not a forgetting, it's, a, it's an active erasure that's actually reoccurring today, right? So we're actually seeing that now too, um, and, and that's something that we, we also can't miss because um, ultimately white supremacy and the systems of oppression don't care about queerness. They are not more queer, white people are not more queer than, than, than everybody else. Um, but the, the systems of power want to use whatever they can to, to eradicate anything that's gonna disrupt that system of power. And right now that's trans kids, right? Um, so I think that, that just can't be missed in this conversation. Thank you. Um, that, yeah, let's have a round of applause. Um, I think so many great points and so beautifully said. Um, I 
I know that I personally resonated with a lot of what everyone uh, spoke about and a lot of the historical context and the white supremacy, the oppression, the history, the forgetting. And also I would like to then um, create space to propose this idea of like wonder and um, like wonder, fascination and like, wow, how remarkable is it that despite all of that, you know, all of that history and, and the oppression that queer and trans people have faced and Korean queer and trans people have faced, like we are now gathered here today celebrating and holding this very, you know, this very like lovely organized um, event and sharing space together and, and sharing wisdom and knowledge. And I think not that it changes any of, uh, any of I think like the past history and the pain and obviously the suffering that a lot of our communities have gone through, I think, you know, would also like to highlight that this is a really beautiful moment. And I, you know, just want to really appreciate uh, all of the words that all of you have contributed. Um, thus far. This is not over. Um, we still have more questions, but just wanted to take a moment um, because, yeah, thank you all for being here and sharing your stories and your experiences because this is exactly why we're here, right, is to do that. Um, kind of, you know, going along and continuing the conversation, we talked about history and ancestry and, um, and with ancestry comes like this question of legacy, right? And, and one of the things that I know that we mentioned talking about earlier was with this space that we're creating through Moim, through KQDX, through the verb that is Korean identity, um, you know, what does, what does that look like for you? What does ancestry mean? And what, what does that mean in terms of, you know, it could be your personal experiences, your personal achievements, your career, what community, what it means in terms of what you might want us to leave behind, as it is a very, you're right, this is a really intergenerational panel and all of us have very different timelines and we can see the legacy right now, like as we sit here today. And I think that's a really beautiful thing. Um, just curious if there's like any thoughts that are triggered by any of those words specifically. I'll just quickly say that during our pre-panel meeting, me and I were talking about how momentous and how amazing it is to have all of you on this panel discussion together, to be able to have kind of like an interdisciplinary discussion. Everyone's coming from such different places as well. And it's really rare, you know, across division, across all odds, to be able to be in the same room sharing different perspectives. So just feeling really thankful. But yeah, ancestry community, kinship, like, <laughs> to re-trigger the memories. Well, I, I would just like to say, to thank uh, me and Dunby and Siobhan and all those who organized this and made this possible. Um, we wouldn't be here if it weren't for them. For me, uh, on my show, we ask everybody the same question, and it goes to the heart of this. Um, so, oh, thank you. <laughs> Jan is reminding me, oh, you should say the name of the show. Uh, so uh, my show is called Uncommon Good with Polly Reese, and uh, you can find us like everywhere you get podcasts. You can find us on YouTube. But the point is, in this specific question that we ask everyone is, 
uh, and that, that I hope that you take some time to think up about as well is what do you want the world to look like when you're done with it? Because there are hundreds of millions of people, hundreds of billions of people, excuse me, who are already done with it to the extent that their corporeal bodies are now recycled and part of us, right? For me, the work of legacy, being Korean adoptee, being, um, if ever I have a Netflix comedy special, instead of being raised by wolves, it will read raised by whites. Um, <laughs> um, but so much of that experience is, as others have said, is being choose to choose one side out of a false dichotomy. Um, you, talked about, you talked about the aggressive eradication of, of queerness. Um, I like to call that um, uh, aggressive incentivization towards normality. <laughs> Because, because that's what it is. That's, that's, that's a part of it, right? We are, we are being placed in a space where the choice of survival is to choose, to, to choose a, a whitening of the self, a, a lessening of the self, um, that, that cajoling, right? For me, to circle back through, uh, to circle back through some of these questions of queerness and to to draw threads together for me, the notion of queer, uh, in, in my work studying queer theology, the, the community organizing work, spending time um, in, you, we talked about indigenous traditions, most of my exposure comes through um, the Zapotec tradition of, of the Mushe. Um, there isn't a direct translation of this that we know of. Um, but functionally, it is a person um, assigned, fe assigned male genitalia at birth, where in the lack of um, a, a town elder performing, um, perform assigned female genitalia at birth, performing those functions steps in and does that sort of gender bending work of providing nurture. But the work of, the work of legacy is about, for me as someone who's, who was forced to choose survival, survival in scare quotes, over self and self-awareness is to choose self-awareness and to choose to become more the person that I am in ways that are joyful and life-giving as opposed to stifling and cancerous in both the, the, the health sense of the word and, the, uh, and the, 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 the more philosophical sense of the word to choose things that give me joy and help create joy for other people is the greatest thing that I can do. And then to give people the tools to find whatever else their joy is and however else they can create that in their own lives and help other people do the same thing. And whatever ism whatever way of being, um, I'm Anglican, in my way we call that a way of life, um, a, like a, a set of principles to organize your life around, like that's awesome. Whatever that is that helps you be le less of, can, can we cuss on this? Like, <laughs> Go for it. Whatever helps you be less of an asshole, do that, right? 
because there are way too many systems that are creating way too many people who don't have to be assholes and are one interaction with you, a joyful person, away from not being an asshole, <laughs> right? Like all of the all of the systems we're talking about, we're not talking about people because like we're like we are all on each other's team. And for me, the legacy is helping us all get on the same team together and to help stop physically, psychologically, and ideologically killing each other and the planet. Thank you. I love that question. Can you say it again, the, the opening question that, Paula, you ask in your, in your podcast? Oh. What is it? Oh, thank you. Um, what do you want the world to look like when you're done with it? That's really nice. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit about ancestry. I recently applied to a scholarship where one of the questions they asked me was, which country do you identify your heritage with? And I, I paused because I realized I didn't know what to put. I mentioned earlier that I'm Korean Chinese. Um, recently, I've been learning more about my family history and when and why and how my family went from Korea to China. My family left Korea before there was a North Korea and a South Korea. And so when I looked at this application question on the scholarship form, I realized I didn't know what to put. There was North Korea, there was South Korea, there was China. And I didn't know which of those three felt right for me. I recently learned that my grandfather, um, so I'm learning more about sort of why my family left Korea for China, as I mentioned. And, and I learned recently that my grandfather was a revolutionary who fought for Korean independence from Japan's colonial regime. And um, as a young person in Korea at the time, he was trying to organize for Korea's liberation from Japan. But Japan's colonial regime was brutal and violent, and they swiftly repressed any anti-Japanese sentiment. So my grandfather and others like him fled to Manchuria, where they could organize freely for Korean independence and train guerrilla armies to fight the Japanese. I only learned this a few weeks ago, actually. Um, my grandfather, he died a long time before I was born, so I've never met him. But I like to think that you know, we can speak to each other through this sort of shared dream or shared vision that, that he had for Korea's liberation and that I try to have today too. That application question on that scholarship form, it bothered me so much because I'm not South Korean, I'm also not North Korean. I'm Korean, I'm Korean. And my grandfather, he fought for Korea to be liberated from Japan. He fought for Korea's independence and for Korea's freedom and I'm part of that, that history and that legacy, and all of us are. And 
you know, I think a lot about that question, like, are you, are you from North Korea or are, you, or are you from South Korea? Are you North Korean or are you South Korean? And what would it look like for us to sort of acknowledge the, the um, assumption that that question itself is based on? Korea is not two countries. Korea is one. Korea has been one for so long. And so many people, so many people have given their lives to fight for a free and reunified Korea. So when I submitted my scholarship application, I, I, I think I put China and I wrote a little note saying, you know, this question challenged me a lot because, you know, I shared a little bit about my story and I, I said, I didn't know what to put because I'm from Korea or I'm Korean. I'm Korean, period, no North or South. And I don't have any relationship to North Korea or South Korea. The relationship I have is to Korea. And I hope that, you know, the, the ways in which Korea's division shows up in these very mundane and everyday ways. Um, I wanna try to be better at, at pointing it out when I see it and when I experience it. And I think that's one way that we can sort of um, trouble that logic or trouble the normalization that now exists of Korea being two countries or Korea being divided by the war. It shouldn't be like that. And you know, we can, we can challenge that assumption in mundane and everyday ways. We can also do it in big ways. But to start, you know, what would it look like for us to do that in small ways? And I think for me, that's something that I'm, I'm trying to do more. And I'm trying to insist on my ancestry as being tied to Korea without a North or South appended to it. I take it it wasn't one of those like hip new ones that let you check multiple buttons on the same. No, it wasn't. Damn it. One, check one. <laughs> you know, uh, listening to you, I was thinking about a few different things. One is, um, I remember a few years ago I saw a film about a famous mudang in Korea, and called uh, the film is called Mansion, and. Uh, what was striking was that there was an anti-mudang um, sort of witch hunt going on in South Korea and North Korea at the same time. So you had this, you know, CIA-installed military dictatorship basically in South Korea and this communist, you know, kind of totalitarian regime in North Korea, both pursuing uh, the persecution of the indigenous mudang culture, even though these two regimes were hated enemies of the other. Uh, and it made me think back to when I, I finished my dissertation, so I finally had a little time to read stuff other than related to my dissertation, and I read a history of Korea. Um, and I was so struck by uh, part of the history that I hadn't really known about, which was about the time I was in utero. Uh, there was a popular uprising in April 1960 against uh, the CIA-installed dictatorship of Syngman Rhee, um, which resulted in a brief period of democratization under the Second Republic, which was then reversed, you know, a year later by uh, Park Chung-hee. Um, and uh, it was 
interesting because I don't know anything about my birth family, nor am I ever likely to. Um, but I was thinking if the story that my adoptive parents were told about my birth parents was true, and of course many Korean adoptees are told false stories or incomplete stories, but if that story was true and my mother gave, uh, died in childbirth, which was actually not at all improbable at that time when Korea was still recovering from the Korean War and was still one of the poorest countries on earth, um, and my father died before I was born, perhaps he was one of the many students and workers and ordinary Koreans who rose up against Sing Man Wee's dictatorship in the April uprising uh, in 1960. So perhaps I was born to make revolution. I love that phrase. I love that phrase. Um, and I think it's really interesting that you um, Dr. Park, you brought up specifically the persecution of mudang and the indigenous practices. And, you know, on this panel alone, we are graced with the presence of two practitioners who are practicing these and, and are educated and initiated in these, in these indigenous practices that were persecuted and erased and very aggressively sought after for a really long time. And, um, you know, Mudang Jen, I have a, you know, a, a specific question for you, you know, given the history of Muism, right, in Korea and, um, you know, the erasure, the negative stigmatization, which I feel like is maybe just now starting to kind of like turn and people are starting to maybe change their minds about it a little bit. Um, you know, do you have any hopes or takeaways on how you know we as the diaspora can engage with our indigenous practices and like what does that look like? Um, yeah. um, when I first started this path as working as a Korean shaman becoming initiated, I started this path as a way to reconnect with my ancestry, as a way to reconnect with my culture and my heritage. And I know that for many Korean diasporas and Korean people um, that, that they too are on similar journeys. And one of the things that I realized within the path of shamanism is creating space, that creating a safe space for people to um, share their storytelling, share their grievances, and holding space for them because our lives is a sacred ritual. Our lives are a, a, a personal expression, it's a personal storytelling of our ancestry, of our stories that is connected to our heritage and our culture. And one of the ways that, um, that I think that Korean diasporas and people of Korean descent that can connect is to is not to do something specific that makes you Korean, but is to explore what your story is, to explore what your connections are. And I know that within Korean shamanism, there is a specific structure, and, um, but a lot of the things that we do in terms of rituals or ceremonies is to hold space that becomes so powerful. I know that ceremonies and rituals were used in, um, in um, I'm sorry, in, um, in political movements as a way to hold space to share the grievances of the people as they oppose government or as they or as they spoke up for their rights you know so shamanism or or ceremonies or in rituals was always a way for people to express themselves their storytelling for them to 
have a safe space so that they could, you know, express themselves fully. Thank you so much. And then, 보살님, 방 보살님, I have, um, <laughs> maybe your guides are taking you to a place, um, which we welcome. Um, but yeah, I have a follow-up question for you as well. Like, I'm curious if you also have any personal hopes or takeaways for the queer Korean diaspora, but I'm also curious how like your own KQD identity has shaped and formed your spiritual journey and experiences as a mudang as well. Um, thank you for that uh, question. Uh, I also wanted to explain that when I was first introduced, I was introduced as a uh, popsa, and I just want, for, for um, access to language, I wanted to explain that that's a title that is usually used for like male mudangs, and um, also it's used for uh, certain drummers who are only um, who only hold ceremony. So uh, I just wanted to just kind of make it um, or just explain that. And going along with that, um, I wanted to also circle back a little bit on the question of legacy, and it's something that I've been kind of obsessed with. Um, because one of the things that I keep getting challenged um, by my spirits is around what is the, who is the legacy about, right? And who is the legacy for? And so I spent a lot of time in meditation and in prayer and reflection um, because the thing that I have come to realize that this is all because it's bigger than me and it's bigger than any one individual. And what has resulted is now my next obsession is around access, right? It's about access to practice, it's about access to tradition, and it's about access to our reclamation, right? Um, and I think that we all talked about being a part of the diaspora we feel this longing and we feel this pull and sometimes we don't even know where that comes from. Um, and part of that I know is that part of our legacy is also very ancestrally rooted, right? Like we can talk about um, all that we talked about, but we also need to recognize that we come from a legacy of trauma. We come from a legacy of Han. And through centuries of that, we st we're still here. And also the fact that the practice of Musok has survived through all of those um, efforts of colonialism and imperialism, it also shows me that we are also made of a legacy of resilience. And that is something that I really hope for folks to really hold on to um, and to continue with. And really my hope and dream is that like that it really, the legacy is about everyone who is going to come after us, right? Yes. When I cross over to the other side, what is the thing that I, that I can leave behind that other people can access, that other people can find without having to go through decades of searching, right? Because some of us have done that. Um, you know, I'm, well, how old am I? I'm 46, sorry. <laughs> I am 46, I actually, you know, I, I mentioned briefly that I grew up in the immigrant Korean church. And so I um, naturally thought, and I've always had a tugging and a pulling of the spirits. 
And I naturally thought, oh, that means I have to go into ministry. So I went all the way to seminary. You know, I got my master's in divinity. I was on an ordination track, everything. And then everything kind of came crashing down um, when my father passed away suddenly, and I had no fucking idea what to do for him. I didn't know how to honor him. I didn't know how to, like, I didn't even know what to do. I didn't know if it was okay to even put, put out, like, a glass of soju for him, right? Because what I've been told over and over growing up in the church was that that is the deed of the devil, right? And so everything that I wanted to do, I was told that it was the opposite, right? That it was the making of the devil and Satan and all that kind of stuff. And then, so when I also think about the question of like, how does my Korean queer trans identity come into play as, as a practitioner of Musok? So I spent some time thinking about this because I was like, you know what? And what I realized was that it doesn't, right? It, what struck me was how little or if at all, I've thought about being queer and trans, coming into the practice of Musok, as opposed to when I was seeking ordination in the Christian church, it was so front and center, right? My entire work around it was around like getting access or helping to um, gain equity for queer and trans folks in the mainline churches, you know, and I was like driven by that. And then when I left the church and I found Musok, it just wasn't even a question. And it was such a, there was such a silence around it that at one point when I got that question, I was like, did I miss something? I was like, maybe I just missed like a pivotal point that I just don't remember. But I realized that I didn't. And that is because, you know what, like our ancestors, they don't care, right? They don't care if you're queer, they don't care if you're trans. Like there are people for a reason and we are here for a reason, right? So I, I, like one of the things that I really do wanna carry away from this also or, or you know, hopefully leave behind is the fact that, just the fact that we think about our identities is such an insidious way that the Western Christian imperialism has stripped us and has reduced us to these labels of identities. And I'm not saying they're not important, I do think they're important. And at the same time, we get so mired by them that we can't see past it. Um, so yeah, thank you. You know, one of the things that I, yeah, that's great. One of the things that I uh, was struck by when I read this history of Korea at the end of grad school on my own, um, was the establishment of the Joseon dynasty by Yi Sung-gye, who became known as King Taejo in 1392. Um, he surrounded himself with Neo-Confucian scholars who'd studied in China. And before 1392, Korea was uh, basically a matrilineal society, not matriarchal, but matrilineal. Um, and the introduction of Buddhism, Confucianism, and Taoism into the peninsula from China had a profound effect on Korean society. And Yi Song-gye, King Taejo, decided to redraw Korean society along Chinese lines and impose this rigid 
patriarchy, patriarchal system on Korean society, which had, was not indigenous. Uh, the Mudang culture was indigenous to Korean society. Um, and so the rather rigidly Confucian heteronormative Korean society that we think of today uh, really was the result of political action by the new regime, which is an important uh, point to be made. Um, I'll tell you a kind of funny story. When I was uh, making my way to um, Old City Hall Plaza for the Queer Korea Festival in June 2015, which by the way was the first time that that event was held in a kind of a mainstream location, not the university district or uh, Itaewon or some you know, sort of less uh, mainstream uh, venue. It was right in City Hall Plaza, Old City Hall Plaza, which is across the street from um, one of the uh, ancient palaces. Um, and the square was surrounded. The police decided to try to erect a big blue plastic wall around the square because Christian fundamentalists were trying to shut us down. They even brought their own sound system and they were uh, singing hymns and waving Bibles and Korean flags. Fortunately, our sound system was bigger and better than theirs. Um, and I was making my way through thousands of Christian fundamentalists and I was struck by the fact that they were waving Korean flags, which of course the Korean flag, first of all, it was actually invented in China, uh, but it has um, Taoist symbolism, right? The yin yang and the, the hexagons, which is not at all Christian. Um, and Christianity itself, of course, is a Western import. Uh, the funniest thing was that they had this little phalanx of teenage girls in tutus doing little ballet steps to the music of Tchaikovsky, who of course is the gayest composer of all time. That we know of. That we, well, yes. That we know of. Yes, well, we could, that's a whole other story. But um, the ironies piled one on the other because here you have these Christian fundamentalists who went to court to shut down the Queer Korea Festival. They uh, were initially successful, but then a court uh, overturned the initial ruling and ruled in favor of the organizers. Uh, and so you had these Christian fundamentalists who were completely unaware of or unconscious of the fact that they were, uh, first of all, using, uh, waving a flag with Taoist symbols on it, which was not at all Christian, and uh, waving Bibles. And of course, um, the Bible is referring to Jesus of Nazareth, not Jesus of Namdemong. Uh, and uh, so uh, one of the things that I think queer Koreans can help other Koreans and Korean Americans do is decolonize their minds from uh, both Christianity uh, in its fundamentalist form, not its more progressive form, but uh, fundamentalist Christianity and also uh, unhelpful Sinaitic influences like Confucianism and reconsider how uh, the Musak, Mudang culture that's indigenous to Korean culture is actually 
uh, woman-centered and queer-friendly. Um, and one of the things, and this is something that uh, I think was alluded to earlier by uh, Skylar, one of the things that I was struck by in reading about the history of uh, the Chukchi in Eastern Siberia, who are cousins really to uh, the Korean people, was that Russian missionaries tried to extinguish indigenous culture in part because it was queer friendly. And the same thing when Russian colonists and missionaries first arrived in Alaska and they were shocked by Inuit uh, and Native Alaskan identities and practices which were queer friendly and recognized uh, what Gilbert Hurt would call a third sex, third gender subject position, uh, which every pre-modern Asian and Pacific Islander society had in some fashion, once again, referencing this presentation uh, that you can find on my website. So one of the things that we need do, to do is liberate our own minds, um, reconnect with this history, um, and reconsider contemporary identities in light of this past history that is informed by a contemporary uh, progressive intersectional feminism, as I would argue, is really necessary to help transform our society into a more equal and just one. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you Dr. Park. Um, I think something that has kind of underlied a lot of the answers that we've heard from the last three speakers is the sense of separation from the queer population in particular and spirituality and how it's something in addition to for queer Koreans how it's something that's often used to remove us from our Koreanness it's another step to remove us from our spiritual identity and the practices that may ground us in the work that we do so I guess my question now to Polly um, to Mudang Jen and Song is in addition to everyone, is like what are the practices that kind of ground you and like what are the lineages, uh, the practices, the rituals that you have and then your hopes for our Korean queer community in reconnecting with those things that are so central in continuing to feed us in the work that we do. Uh, I'll start. Um, <laughs> For me, um, being invisibly disabled, um, a lot of that is a tenacious commitment to being careful guardian of my sleep. Just, yeah. I'm a podcaster, so I'm not very good at that. I'm not very good at being like, it's 10 o'clock, it's, it's time for bed. Um, but sleep is good. Um, like the, the thing about, about, um, about disability that's important to me and informs the answer to this question is that everything that you want to do always takes more effort. And on top of that, everything that you wish you could do, you never have enough time to do because everything takes more of your energy and you are starting from less, right? So for me, my 
present experience of spirituality as someone who has also withdrawn from a potential career in Christian ordained ministry. Um, and it took completing an entire MDiv to figure that out. Um, up, the, up the road in Connecticut also. Can, can we also just all ask the collective question, like what and why is Connecticut? Um, <laughs> My guy over there knows exactly what we're talking about. <laughs> I, I, I'm, 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 I'm kidding, Yale Divinity School. Please sponsor the next talk that, that Moeem does. Um, uh, um, like, the, like, so much of my spirituality is connected to the body because there is nothing about who I can be and what I can do if my body is not well. I got like flu or RSV back in December um, and I was down for a month. It wasn't even COVID. Like I was, I was like, it must be COVID. One line, one line on the bar, like, it, like next day, et cetera. So um, careful, careful attention to the body and paying attention to what the body is telling me is the right thing to be doing represents me paying attention to to my spirit, let it, let us let us because because that's what capitalism does, right? That's what the white, that's what what the white industrial complex does is it tells us that our body is not important enough to pay careful attention to, and that if you can, if you have to take a weekend, but but please come back or like if we have to give you if we have to give you Labor Day or we have to give you maternity, um, how can we make that shorter and how can we make you feel badly about taking it, right? So. Attention to body, number one. Um, because we are people of, or at least for me, because I am a person of my history, and for me, I don't have the energy, the emotional energy to just hate my own history and where I came from. I am doing my best to observe when in those moments there are things that were honestly, like, legit life-giving. Um, and to to pay a little bit more closer attention to what are the things about being raised in a Germanic, white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant family that feel good, that make me feel good. Um, one of those things is like old-timey Sega Genesis, right? Or, but, like but everyone has one of those things. Like, well, like whatever that is that feels like, that feels like a, a part of my experience that that I can like connect to that is okay and makes me feel okay and brings me that joy. I'm gonna I'm gonna acknowledge that and do my best to live in the tension that it can be true that so much of my identity w was erased that I'm now in the process through things like being here, um, digging into my food, um, frankly listening to the rest of the people on this panel, um, like, like what, that I can live in the tension that all of those things were both awful, but it's still part of who I am, and I am not a bad thing. I am an okay thing. All of you are okay things. <laughs> and we can, enjoy, the, all of those things can be true. So, so that's, I guess, living in the tension um, is how I would describe it. Uh, 
Um, so, okay, uh, I'm an extremely introverted person, um, and I actually chose to withdraw from doing work with community and movement work because I just didn't want to be out there anymore. Um, but one of the things, again, I think that I want to reiterate is that, um, you know, there has, there is a challenge and there is a charge, right? Um, and it's, for me, as someone who, you know, came out of movement and also someone who is also a middle child, so I'm very familiar with having to share, right? Um, and, and building bridges. And so for me, I do think that for me, in order to recharge and to feel at ease is to know that somehow we can find a way, I mean, I really am on a hunt, to find a way to have some of our indigenous practices that are um, practiced and shared in a way that is, um, that is carried by community and the collective. Um, because as it is practiced right now is very individual based or very family based. And I think for a lot of us, that doesn't necessarily vibe, right? Or it doesn't necessarily nurture us. And so I do want to be able to like find this access. And as Pauline mentioned, Korean history doesn't start in the Joseon dynasty, right? Um, that's just the most recent. And before that, it was not a patriarchal society. And one of my models has become Confucius has fucked up everything. <laughs> and, um, and also the fact that like, yes, it was matri matri matrilineal. However, it was not mat a matriarchal or patriarchal, right? And I think that's the one thing about Musok that I really hold on to is that Musok is all about balance, right? It's all about holding the both and. And that also means the blessings and the tensions, but also it's also about the healing that we can get from that. And so I do, I do look at that as my means of moving toward becoming more whole and becoming more at ease. Thank you so much. For me, um, shaman, being a shaman or walking this path of shamanism and exploring spirituality has been a way for me to reconnect with my culture and my heritage. Like, and I'm sure many people feel the same way or is looking to reconnect. But one of the things that I realized within our spiritual practices is all about expression. Um, if you look at the different things that are stem from shamanism, shaman ceremonies like drumming, dancing, singing, these are all different ways for us to express ourselves, for us to have space and a story tell. And also these tools that we use, whether it's drumming, dancing, or singing, it also helps us come back into our bodies that we often feel uncomfortable in. And I think that um, exploring our spiritual path is coming back into our bodies a little bit and to explore what our feelings are or what our emotions are. And knowing that their, our rage is sacred, knowing that what we feel is sacred, and knowing that our expression, our story is sacred. And, and that also expands to what Sung said, is how it involves in the community. There is individual work, but also there's a bigger aspect of community, of gatherings. And I think that when there are spaces like this where we can gather to share stories, to share experiences, I think that is very powerful in providing healing and providing space for everyone. 
Could I, could I respond to your question? I, I'm almost invariably asked to speak on panels about my political activism, so this is a rare opportunity to talk about something that, in theory, is completely non-political, which is uh, in terms of spiritual practices. When I was um, 13, I picked up a little paperback book. I bought a little paperback book, paperback version of Dr. Ann Faraday's book called um, Dream Power. And it started me on an interesting path, which I, I almost never talk about this in public, but uh, uh, dream work, which I do on a regular basis, and dream interpretation. The interesting thing is I have friends who say, oh, I don't dream. Of course, we all dream. Some of us remember our dreams and some do not. Um, but uh, the interesting thing about dreaming is that while Sigmund Freud opened up this world uh, to, uh, of dream interpretation to European and American audiences, of course, this kind of dream work is indigenous to pretty much every pre-modern culture. Um, one of the most interesting, well, I'll just mention two things briefly. One is that I use dream work. Uh, I've had some very significant dreams which have really changed the course of my life. One thing that I did was use dream work actively to try to work through what I later came to understand was internalized homophobia and transphobia, particularly related to uh, my Christian fundamentalist mother and family. Um, when I was, I can remember as young as six and seven having lucid dreams, although I didn't know that term at the time. You know, dreaming when you you realize you wake up in your dream and you realize you're you're dreaming. And though I don't do it very often, I do occasionally do lucid dreaming. And this is something that is actually indigenous to a number of Asian cultures, uh, Tibetan culture in particular. And there there are stories of uh, Tibetan dream yogis who will do lucid dreaming for days on end. Um, and the interesting thing about this is that in Western societies, dreaming is considered frivolous or meaningless or maybe a luxury in a very productivist, neoliberal capitalist economy. But in fact, it can be extremely important in terms of drawing insights uh, from your own unconscious and also addressing uh, issues, problems, challenges, traumas in one's own life. And so even though on the face of it, in some ways, it's apolitical, in other words, in, in another respect, it's actually very political because it's a way in which we can uh, reignite a connection with a, a deep spirituality. And I would also say, and this kind of connects with uh, my interest with in fairy tales and folk tales and mythology, a reenchantment to the world. Because one of the problems with the Industrial Revolution was the drive towards an ever more human exploitative, but also earth exploitative and extractive economy and society. So one of the things that we can do when we engage in practices which are actually extremely ancient and indigenous to countries and cultures of our of origin is actually 
reimagine the world in a way that encompasses human needs and puts them ahead of profit, labor exploitation, extraction of natural resources, and also connects us with the plant world, the animal world, and the larger universe around us. Thank you so much, Dr. Park. So I have one last question before we move into a Q&A. So if the audience has any questions that are ruminating on your mind from this wonderful talk, now is the time to just tuck them away and prepare them for us. We'll have someone coming down with a mic. Um, Siobhan in the back. Um, but the last question that I have, and hopefully we can all answer, is based on Dr. Pauline's last statement, what is one dream that you have for our community moving forward? And this community can look like whatever you wanted to find it as. And just noting that I know that this is a this is kind of like an overall theme that we've been um, talking about for the past hour. So, um, and also noting, you know, I know that there are, I'm sure that there are uh, people who want to ask you questions and engage with that. So maybe keep it a little bit brief. <laughs> Um, well, I, I, wanted, I wanted to share this little note and then I will answer the question. It's related, I promise. Um, one of the things that, a couple years ago I asked my many this was before we went to Korea for a big family visit, really the only time I've been consciously visiting because I was two the last time we visited. Um, I said, many do you miss Korea? And she kind of was like, yeah, kind of. Um, and I said, do you, would you ever move back there? And she said, absolutely not. Um, and I said, well, why not? And I, I was asking in a very curious manner, hopefully she didn't feel attacked, but she said, she said, America is my home. I've lived here for, I don't know, 40, 50 years. Um, America is my home. And my grandmother's a devout Catholic. Um, I'm actually, from what I know about um, Muism and Mudangs, I'm like afraid to ask her about it because of what she might have internalized from how she grew up. Um, and so I learned nothing of Muism. I learned nothing about Mudangs until actually this panel. Um, and the first time, I, I, I didn't know what Mudang was as we were doing our pre-panel call, and so I, I Googled it, and I immediately started crying. Um, and when I was thinking about ancestry and thinking about dreams for the future, um, they don't feel all that different, the thoughts about ancestry and the thoughts about our dreams. In some ways, we are our ancestors' dreams, and as I dream, I dream of my ancestors. I think often these days, especially as I, I've lost my grandparents on my dad's side, um, and my, my grandparents on my, my mom's side, my Korean grandparents are, in many ways, to me, they feel like the tie to my, to my history, the tie to my Koreanness, um, and I feel like I've already begun grieving their loss. And so I think about, about dreams when I think about the amount of movement that, are, that many of us have experienced in our families. I mean, all of you are likely immigrants here, just statistically speaking, not because you're here in Korean, but in America, most people immigrated some point in history. And what does that mean to, when we think about ancestry, when we think about ties to a, to a land, to a practice, to a tradition. Um, as I was listening and learning about you know, Korean history, many things I didn't know. Um, my mom always likes to say, for 45 generations, we were in Korea. And I didn't ever even think about like, what does that even mean to be in a country for 45 generations and now for her to be here for 45 years. Um, 
so I, when I think about dreams and I think about ancestry and how I, how I think they're the same thing, um, what, I, what I dream for the future is the ability to define one's self not solely by ancestry and not solely by dream, but, but, but whatever we are in this one moment. And how do we integrate who we've been, who we come from, who we are expected to be, and who we truly are in every step of our life. Thank you. For me to be queer and Korean is to be the fullest version of myself that I can be. In, in, in my, thank you, thank you. Yeah, come on, come on now. Um, in, in my academic circles, there's a lot of talk, in queer theology, there's a lot of talk about how to make something queer or to queer something is to disrupt it, to disrupt something else. I would love, my dream for the world, is for us to all live in a world where for us to be as fully ourselves as possible is no longer a status of being queer. Where it is perfectly normal for all of us in our beautiful, weird, messy, broken weirdness, to be ourselves, and for that to be the normal status of order. Thank you. Any other thoughts before we move on to Q&A? Yeah. Um, I just wanna say uh, one last thing. Um, I didn't know anything about Muism either. Um, even after I decided that I couldn't pursue ordination uh, in the church. Um, but. I say all of this to say that um, what I hope and dream is that we all become memory holders for each other in community. Because what I feel that I do when I do readings with different folks is that I am holding their memories, right? And I'm holding their ancestors' memories. And in turn, I am hoping that I am helping the other person recover and hold the memories of their people and their ancestors. And, you know, and we do this in community already by storytelling and by sharing our, our experiences and our, and our stories, right? And so my hope and dream is that this becomes and continues to be a collective effort in each of us being a sacred story holder and memory keeper for each other. Thank you so, so much. Um, and with that, uh, I know it's just for the sake of time, I do want us to move on to some questions from the audience. Um, I know that Siobhan has a mic back there and the beautiful yellow jacket. Um, if folks could please raise their hand and um, if they have questions that they would like to ask uh, the panel, that would be great. Come on, people. <laughs> There's a couple hands over here. Raise, raise them high. There's like flutters of hands over here. Hello. Hi. Uh, hi. My name is Soy or Soyoung. Um, they them pronouns. Um, so there's a lot of things that are floating in my head from this panel, but uh, most uh, significant on my mind is the calling to heal in community. And this is the second time that I've heard that this month um, from in a Korean queer space um, connected to Musok or Muism. And 
I just wanted to uh, ask how that might look, like specifically, what sort of spaces do y'all think are needed for us to do that actionably now? Like what, what are the, my Virgo Mars is popping out, like what are the logistical <laughs> steps to, um, like p potential options that we can um, choose from for spaces like that? Um, yeah, that's my question. Great question. Any thoughts? I know. Uh, so Jennifer and I talk about this all the time. Um, like it's to the point where we're on the phone for hours at a time. It's all we do. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like all we do. It's kind of weird. Um, <laughs> but you know, to tell you the truth, we don't have an answer right now, right? And this is part of our journey in discovering and being part of um, practitioners as as diaspora Koreans um, is to kind of try and rediscover. Or if there's nothing to rediscover, then what can we pull together that's going to be open, that can be opened up to community on that level? So, I mean, I'm sorry, I don't have anything to like concretely say or that you can touch right away, um, but I promise it's coming and I'm really determined to make it happen. As somebody who's not a mudang and who doesn't practice musoka, because I don't, I'm not an expert like you, I want to add that finding community is also about finding yourself. And what I mean by that is that the more we pay attention, this kind of goes off of what you were saying, Polly, but the more we pay attention to what feels good, the more we can find what feels good. And I think we are taught often to lean into what is productive what will move us through a social network, um, what will get us a job, what will get us paid, that makes sense, that's survival, right? But what actually makes us feel good? What doesn't help us survive, but rather helps us thrive? And the more we do that, the more we build community of other people that thrive in similar ways that we do in similar environments and similar ambiances, right? And I think if we can listen to ourselves, what feels good in my friendships? What feels good in my relationships? What activities bring me joy? I think that that, that is the start of creating community and you can do that tonight. You can do that right now. Um, so I, I think that community starts with a person saying, I want to be in community with people who want to be in community with me. And it's two-sided, right? Belonging is two-sided. I most have to enter into a space and I also have to be welcomed in that space. And first, I have to welcome myself. That's all I really can control. Hi, good evening. I just want to say thank you so much for this panel. It's fucking, excuse my language, it's fucking amazing. Um, there's just so many beautiful people, so many I know, and so many I've never met before, but I'm so glad that I saw you. I'm also here in community with my other steering committee members for KQTX, even though this is not a KQTX sanctioned event. Anyway, just want to say hello, thank you. So my, I don't really have a question, but I have an observation and a comment as well. So I am also a KQD CAD, so that's a Korean adoptee. And so just my observation tonight, and I heard the word legacy, I heard the word ancestry, I heard the word dream, but at the same time, I'm sitting here having a lot of emotions, right? And so I'm sitting here under this beautiful artist, like, but I don't know what that means. It's not translated. Right, so there's, there's no language inclusion. And that's something that I'm hoping that we can all activate, right, language inclusion. There were some uh, words that were being used tonight on this panel 
that I, you know, turned to somebody and said, what is that grandmother? What, what does that mean? So we don't all have that access to those words. And I just want to say being an adoptee, right? We are part of this community, right? We are a huge part of this community and our legacy, unfortunately, we are dying. We're dying. I'm the second wave of it. And the first and second wave is the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. And the eventuality is the majority of us will be gone. And so I'm just trying to acknowledge the fact that going forward, my hope for our community is not that we just embrace queerness, transness, all of that, but you can just look around and acknowledge the fact that we've been here for so long. And there are parts of me that I have to share and shut off at the same time. And just saying to myself, like, I'm so glad to be here, but at the same time, we're not being acknowledged. And so my dream, my hope, my legacy is that when we talk about in inclusion, it means all of it together all at once. So don't forget us. That's all, that's all my authorization is. So thank you again. Thank you. Thank you for, sh well, I don't, oh, there it goes. Thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate, um, I know sometimes it can, it can be, well, I imagine that I would feel scared to share what you shared, and I just appreciate you reminding us of that. Um, and and I wanted to share, though, I'm not an adoptee. I, I have many friends who are, and I um, often find a lot more community with Korean adoptees than I do with people who have two Korean parents. Um, and I, too, did not know many of the words that were shared. Um, and, um, and I also used a word that I didn't define when I said many, which is grandmother. So thank you for that reminder. I think that's just a... Um, yeah, I'll take that forwards, and I really appreciate it. Hello. <laughs> um, so as someone who uh, both of their parents immigrated to Korea, uh, from Korea to America, um, I was born and raised here, and I've never been to Korea. So I was wondering, to what extent do you think, period, <laughs> to what extent do you think it's necessary? And to what extent do you believe that you don't have to like go to Korea to experience Korea? Could I, could I quickly clarify your question? Do you also mean like, to what extent do you feel like you have to go to Korea to be Korean or to experience Korea specifically? Yeah, like all of that. Okay, thank you. Well, you know, I'll, I'll tell you a story, which is um, I always wanted to go back to Korea. I put back in quotes because it's funny, you know, half a century later going back, um, people always ask me, have you been back? Like, I just left a week ago, you know. <laughs> um, it was really funny because when I came back, I was chatting with a gay white friend of mine who in a very nice way said, so did you feel especially Korean when you were in Korea? I said, well, I have never felt less Korean than when I was in Korea, right? Uh, because I didn't speak the language, I didn't grow up with culture, um, some of the food was very strange to me I'd never seen before, and I'd eaten you know, Korean food, but there were certain dishes that I'd never had before. Um, I have Korean adoptee friends who feel the need to go back every year. Um, I have one Korean adoptee friend who 
wept when he first arrived. Um, I think everyone has a slight, has a different reaction. We're all individuals and each of us has our own individual path, whether that be our, our gender journey or in the case of adoptees, our adoptee journey. Um, so I think it's really a very individual question. I will only speak from my own experience by saying that I do hope to go back to Korea at some point, but I don't feel a compelling need to. I spent a month there and uh, experienced the country of my birth, which is something I'd always wanted to do. Um, but I have, you know, Korean friends here. You know, I can go to uh, 32nd Street or Flushing and they have great, you know, Korean food. Um, so I don't necessarily need to go back to Korea to experience Koreanness. Um, I think uh, the country is in the midst of significant change, some of which is good. I think the, uh, uh, the progress of the LGBT community is slow, but uh, is uh, moving ahead uh, very slowly. Also, the country is slowly coming to terms with the extremely uh, complicated legacy of Korean adoption. And I'm hoping uh, the, uh, the, the parliament, the National Assembly enacts some significant adoption reform laws that give adoptees access to uh, birth records that they should have access to, uh, but haven't had access to. So I think it's really an extremely individual uh, question because you know I've hundred, literally hundreds of Korean adoptee friends and hundreds of queer Korean friends, and each of them has a slightly different relationship to the country. My relationship to the country is a somewhat ambivalent one because I respect it and in some ways revere it as the country of my birth, but I also recognize that it is a patriarchal, homophobic, transphobic, Confucian, overly Christian fundamentalist influenced capitalist regime in which the chaebol, the, the, the conglomerates have way too much power and the ruling elite is corrupt just like our own. So, you know, there are wonderful things about Korea. There were things that I loved. There were things that I hated. But I'll tell you, I, when I went there, I was, a little, I was concerned that people would read me as transgendered, but oddly enough, I never had any experiences of, uh, of transphobia in that sense. The only time that people stared at me was when I bared my shoulders because Korean women do not do that. It's, it's one of these weird things. I mean, there were young Korean teenage girls who had, you know, shorts that were, that probably would get them arrested here, but they covered their shoulders. So I had these, um, I had a spaghetti strap dress and I had one uh, strapless dress that I thought was rather nice. And when I wore it, it was June and July, so it was really hot and humid, uh, people would stare at me. You know, especially the ajuma, they would look at me like, mm. uh, but then I would throw a scarf over my shoulders and people would stop staring. So I realized it wasn't my 
transness. It was actually my bared shoulders. And I thought, hmm, could I really live in a country where I can't bare my shoulders in the summer? Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, so I think my response would be that every single one of us will have a slightly different individual relationship uh, to Korea. And that will depend on so many different factors. And that, that's fine, because we all have a particular individual journey uh, of Koreanness, or uh, individual journey is a Korean adoptee, or a queer Korean, or uh, biracial, or whatever uh, identity uh, formation we may embrace. Thank you. And really quickly, Dr. Park, for the you know the sake and reiteration of language access, could you really quickly define ajuma? Oh yeah, ajuma is sort of like I think technically it means married woman, but it's sort of slang for middle-aged woman, and I'm now well into that category. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the, it has a slightly negative pejorative. You know, you picture uh, the middle-aged women with the the funny little sun visors. <laughs> who sit, and the, the perm, and who sit there on the street corner and kind of yeah. write and, and kind of cluck, yeah. yes, flower pants, yeah. and they cluck their tongues when they see something that they don't approve like a, of, so. Yeah, classically gossiping auntie type caricature. You see them in K-dramas all yeah. the time. If you <laughs> Thank you so I, much. I think also, um, Pauline, what you're what you're talking about in terms of the different ways people discover or, or you know experience their Koreanness is it, it begs that identities evolve, right? Like my my grandmother, in my opinion, if you were to make an objective spectrum of it, my grandmother, my harmony is far more Korean than I am, and most people would read her as an immigrant. She's got an accent. She speaks you know English, but she mostly speaks Korean, and she looks like a Korean woman. Um, she is definitely the permed, floral, panted, wearing um, ajima who is older than an ajima. But anyways, um, she would tell you she's American. Um, and she wouldn't deny her Koreanness, but she would tell you fervently and firmly that she is American. Um, and she's lived here longer than I have. <laughs> um, and I would tell you first that I'm Korean. And I think the, the question or the, the core of what I'm trying to say is, you get to define what that means to you. And so be it going back to Korea because you would like to experience amazing food, um, then great idea. But if you're gonna discover Koreanness because solely you are stepping on Korean uh, a land, um, I don't think there's a problem with that necessarily, but that is your journey, right? And I think it's really important to consider, can Koreanness, or to ask yourself, can Koreanness evolve based on who I am and where I am? Thank you. Um, we can probably take two more questions. Two more questions, if anybody has, yes. Um, hi, uh, my name is MJ, um, they, he pronouns. I think, um, so when storytelling, or when I kind of have been diving into storytelling and especially for queer individuals, it's usually through like a lens of like violence, shame, and like a lot of like atrocities. Um, and so when I've been trying to like reimagine re like my own storytelling and trying to like remove those and supplant like curiosity, joy, it's been a very like healing journey. And so I'm kind of wondering um, when we are retelling our stories, especially to like younger generations, maybe even to like older generations that don't have access to queer people, like how 
essential is the shame factor, the violence factor in these narratives? And like, how does joy and play come into that when we're kind of trying to like share these stories where so much of like, in America specifically, when you're trying to like dive into queer narratives, it's um, to see yourself kind of like boxed up and like, yeah, shaking for a while. And then at the end, it's like a crumb of joy in the face of like maybe a hand touch or something very small. Um, but it's kind of exhausting. And so it's kind of been very healing to imagine like a life without that shame and without that like um, that boxedness. Um, so yeah. So. Uh, I would just say, you know, over the course of the 28 or 20, I guess now it's 29 years, I've been doing LGBT activism. I've come to the conclusion that we have to tell both sorts of stories. We do have to s tell stories of uh, discrimination, harassment, uh, abuse, and violence because they're very real. And of course, with the exponential increase in hate crimes against Asians, Asian Americans, uh, there are many more stories to tell. Um, at the same time, we also have to tell stories that inspire and empower, and empower us. Because if we only tell the, the kind of victim stories, it can be very, can actually be disempowering if we uh, uh, stop there. Um, so I think we have to tell both sorts of stories. We have to both recognize the ongoing oppression that we all face in some fashion or other, whether it be you know, homophobia, transphobia, biphobia, racism, et cetera, some combination thereof, and also talk about how we can overcome, how we can uh, empower ourselves and others and work through community to uh, pursue social justice and social change. Uh, and I think that's the way forward to transform society. There, there's a great book um, called How Far the Light Reaches by a non-binary, half Chinese, half um, white author. And they write about um, marine creatures. I promise this is relevant. Um, and they, they talk about the cuttlefish, which if you don't know, cuttlefish can, can morph and change its color based on its surroundings. And scientists have tested this cuttlefish by stressing it in order to make it change, uh, change color. Basically, like if we you know, run electrical current, if we scare it, it will change color. And they have a quote that said, this is a quote from the book, um, reading a creature through its camouflage seems a misguided attempt to understand its true nature, its whole self. I want to know how the cuttlefish morph when there are no sharks around, only other cuttlefish. I want to know what kinds of transformation the cuttlefish is capable of, of, of when it is motivated not by fear, but by community and sex. And I'm not interested in calling it a disguise. And I think that's kind of what I thought of when you asked the question is what do we, what do we think about how can, we, how can we honor the history of oppression that queerness holds while also not seeing it as queer as in fuck the binary or queer as in fuck the system, but queer as in just who we are? As the mic's getting passed, MJ, um, I'll add a couple of things. Um, my, special, my specialty in, in um, spiritual work in, is, is trauma-informed spiritual care, in the, in the Western definition of that, like thinking about trauma as 
the overstimulation of the body's responsive systems to be able to cope to, a, to an external stimulus, meaning like shit gets crazy. Um, it sounds like to me, you have a sense, uh, and, and I, I wanna make a very specific distinction between shame and all of the things that you described and lament and spiritual anger and, and rage um, at the risk of, uh, of triggering some of you who may have experiences with Christian fundamentalism. Um, but I, 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 I don't hear this in your comment, um, like righteous fury, the soul crying that it has been violated in such a way that there is nothing to do but to be angry by the way that the human has been marred. Right? Right? Yeah, I heard you over there. Um, so at the risk, and, and not, a, not a therapist, but someone, who, someone who, who, whose work intersects this component, so please, if, you, if you have a mental health professional, please see them. Also, just go see them. Um, <laughs> what your spirit is telling you that you're not, I suspect, is that you're not done with lament yet. There's more, there's more to, ex, to explore there because I imagine that joy probably rings false for you right now. And if it does, then it's not real joy. And it's also another trick of the system to tell you that you should already be done lamenting. You cry and rage as much as you need to until you're done. And your body will know. The body keeps the score. <laughs> You'll know. Thank you. Do we have one last question? T two last questions? Perfect. Uh, I'm just so struck by the diversity of thoughts and disciplines and perspectives that the whole panel is bringing. And so this is kind of a more just open, maybe lightning round. I'd love to hear from each person if possible, um, just because I know so much of what drives the work that each of you are doing, whether it's in your discipline or your political work, community organizing, are you know, questions and discoveries. So I'm just curious for each person on the panel, what is a current discovery or question that you're grappling with that might be driving your work forward? Let's give a moment to sit and then maybe we could start with either Janice or Mudang Jen, whoever's ready. <laughs> we'll give a moment though. I'm seeing the buck be passed over to Mudang Jen from over here, so. Okay. <laughs> I think that I think a question that I'm grappling with is kind of similar to what Sung has shared and is how to provide space for the community or how to integrate the community into a space that is that includes everyone. That everyone has a place, have a have a space to share stories or just to share anger or just to share by just holding the space. And and I know that Sung shared that he is, you know, he's been on the search for that. And I think we all have, and at the moment right now for me, that's also something that I've been thinking very deeply about since I've been on this path. Are we going in this order? Okay. Oh, we don't have to, but if you're ready, yeah. Uh, well, I want to hear what other folks have to say and then. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like everyone's wanting to, to speak first. 
<laughs> well, if no one else. Okay, so um, I was uh, just a few weeks ago asked to do something that I've never done before, <laughs> which is write a piece of biblical exegesis. Now, coming from a Christian fundamentalist background, you know, my mother would read the Bible constantly, uh, King James Version. Um, this was kind of a curious uh, assignment. Uh, it's a collection of short essays on queer reinterpretation of Old Testament books. And I was given a choice of books. Genesis was taken, and so was Leviticus. The, the fun ones, right, Deuteronomy. Um, you know, no, no Lot's wife, no Sodom and Gomorrah. All, 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 all the fun stuff was taken. So anyway, I was given a choice of a bunch of books, which are really pretty obscure by biblical standards. You know, Nehemiah and Hosea. And... So anyway, I... Uh, sort of paged through them and thought, okay, I'll pick Amos. Amos is one wow. of, I know Amos, <laughs> right? <laughs> Talk about obscure. Uh, but, and it has a lot of, you know, stuff that I'm going to sort of uh, critique, including this whole chosen people thing. Um, <laughs> and add my own little spin as a Palestine solidarity organizer. Um, but the reason I picked Amos is because it has one of the most wonderful passages in the Old Testament, even though most of Amos is, you know, full of Yahweh's fulminations, and uh, Yahweh is one of my least favorite people. Um, it has this famous passage, which Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, loved quote, which is, uh, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. And I thought about that, and I realized, you know, there are two ways of interpreting that, right? There's uh, what my mother church would interpret it in very, um, you know, Old Testament ways. And then there's a queer, progressive, feminist, intersectional interpretation of that, which is we can take this uh, Old Testament book and question it, interrogate it, and come up with a conclusion that articulates a movement towards social justice and social change that is LGBT inclusive, specifically transgender inclusive. And so maybe after all these decades, <laughs> um, I, I was, I was, I think, first in my catechism class. I don't know if that's a humble brag or not, but um, <laughs> I can take that background, which I haven't used for a very, 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 very long time, and articulate a queer, progressive, feminist, intersectional analysis that helps forefront uh, pursuit of social justice. Thank you. Um, for me, I think the, the, the bigger question for me has always been, um, I've always been in very close community with folks who are 
practicing in their respective indigenous practices, um, folks who are not Korean um, or of the Korean diaspora. And so, and also, you know, being a movement baby, um, my perspective, now what I'm grappling with and my motivation is, what is the role of shamans within uh, liberation movements? Like, how do we serve in a way that's going to protect um, heal and also energize those on the front lines. So that's what I'm grappling I'm, I'm struggling to find a, a singular question that um, that answers your question. <laughs> um, and so what I what I'll share is that right now the question that is sort of in bold in my brain is how do I take all of this with me? Um, I think I've, I've been sitting here trying to be as much of a sponge as possible so much so that I forgot the question until you gracefully repeated it. Um, so thank you. <laughs> um, but I, I want so badly to soak up every ounce of Koreanness that is global, not just Koreanness from Korea, um, and integrate it into my own memories. Uh, you said you're a keeper of memories as a, as a mudong, and um, that really sort of struck, struck me, I think, in many ways, like kind of how ancestors can be dreams and dreams can be ancestors, perhaps we are our ancestors' memories as well. Um, and, and my ancestors are my memory, um, and it is mine to hold and to keep. And so if, if we think about ancestry being broader than the blood that begat me, um, I have to hold all of this too, or I want to. Um, and so I, I think that's my question, is how can, I, how can I leave this place and take all of the Koreanness, the beautiful sort of expansive Koreanness that I've experienced here with me? I first want to acknowledge the sock game that's going on in the three chairs here, because I'm just like, damn. Um, <laughs> um, but, but, but in addition to that, it's a two-part question. Um, even before we get to finding each other's common humanity underneath all of the, the perceived difference bullshit, how do we start just tolerating each other again in public? Because we're not doing that well. And, part two, what happened that we missed the opportunity to do that with COVID recovery? I think one question I am grappling with is whether we will see another war in Korea. I think in a few days or in a week or so, the US and South Korea are about to launch another set of joint uh, military exercises. The UN administration in South Korea, hawkish right-wing administration, and the Biden administration in the US, democratic administration, have joined together to sort of uh, push forward a very uh, hawkish and anti-North Korea uh, foreign policy. And I think that's really scary. And so I think it's very possible that we'll see, we'll see a war. And I mean, the, the longer story is that the, the Korean War never ended, right? 
it's a, it was a temporary ceasefire, not a peace treaty, and we're seeing those tensions sort of continue to escalate right now. I don't know what the answer is, and, and I, don't, I don't pretend to have any answers either, but I, I feel scared. I wonder if we will see a war and what that will mean for both those of us in the US and if we have families in Korea and China and Asia in general. Thank you, everyone. I feel like in this panel, there's a lot of seeds of like hope for the future and the answers like within all of us as well. And I hope that this conversation has sparked a little bit of hope and connection with, um, within you. This has been Moim. This recording was produced in partnership with Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts on location at David Rubenstein Atrium. Siobhan Sung, producer. For more about Lincoln Center, visit their website, lincolncenter.org, and follow them on Instagram at Lincoln Center. Thank you so much for tuning in to Uncommon Good with Polly Reese. This program is produced in Southwest Philadelphia in the unceded neighborhood of the Black Bottom community and on the ancestral land of the Lenape Nation, who remain here in the era of the Fourth Crow and fight for official recognition by the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania to this day. You can find out more about the Lenape Nation of Pennsylvania and how you can support the revitalization of their culture by going to lenape-nation.org. Our associate producers are Willa Jaffe and Kia Watkins. If you enjoyed listening to the show, please support the show by leaving us a five-star review and a comment and subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps people find us. Uncommon Good is also available on YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram at Uncommon Good Pod. Follow us there for closed caption video content and more goodies. We love questions and feedback. You can send us a DM on social media or an email at uncommongoodpod at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, wishing you every uncommon good to do your uncommon good to be the uncommon good.